Hello and a warm welcome back to Footprints. This month we're exploring radical bath. Now when I say the word bath, I think most of you might start thinking about the Romans or the crescents and bath stone, or perhaps Jane Austen. Yet it has had an underbelly of radicalism and rebellion in its streets and it's been home to rallies and riots. In the 19th century, it was the centre for the Chartist movement in the West. And at the start of last century, Bath became a refuge for suffragettes coming out of prison. It's played host to a major bypass protest. And today, under the guise of a group called Kiddical Mass, Bath children are campaigning for safer streets to cycle in. We're going to hear about all of these in this episode. And so first of all, let's go for a walk with local historian Andrew Swift. Many listeners will know Andrew for his excellent books about the city. And we join him during Bathscape's recent walking festival, leading a walk called Radical Bath. Right, good afternoon and welcome to a walk around Radical Bath, a bit, a bit of Bath's history which isn't in the, isn't, certainly isn't in the tourist guide, so you won't be seeing any blue plaques or anything like that because this is sort of Bath's hidden history. Let me just explain what Bath Corporation was in the early 19th century and had been for centuries. Bath Corporation was 30 men 30 councillors, aldermen, who elected each other. So when one either retired or died, the rest of them co-opted somebody else onto it. There was no election. That was it. They were in charge of Bath. And they owned just about everything within the city walls and a good deal outside. The court, the council still does own a lot of property. It owned a lot more then. This self-perpetuating oligarchy had been there for years. And not only did they elect themselves, Bath had two MPs at the time. Those two MPs were elected by those 30 men. They're the only people who voted in Bath. Doesn't matter how rich you were, that was it. How much property you owned, you did not have the vote. And people were getting a bit fed up with this. This had been the case back in the Elizabethan age when Bath had a, a population of under 2,000. But by this stage, Bath had a population of over 30,000, which made it just about the most undemocratic place in the country. Compare it with Bristol at this time. I mean, you know, not many people had the vote proportionately, but in Bristol at, the, at this time, around 4,000 men had the vote in Bristol. 30 men in Bath. That's 0.1% of the population. This had been challenged by the, the freemen of Bath twice, and each time Parliament had decided against it, said no, the, the system works perfectly well. Uh, and it was, it was such a scandal that Tom Paine, in his Rights of Man, picked out Bath and held it up as a example of how undemocratic some places were. The calls for reform were becoming ever more insistent, not just in Bath, but throughout the country. 
Five years later, we go on to now, 1817, there was another mass meeting here in the Orange Grove, which could very easily have had disastrous consequences. It was organised by Henry Hunt, who you may have heard of, you probably have heard of, famous orator, and also a um, very wealthy businessman. He was a brewer and he had a yard in Walcott Street, a brewery in Walcott Street. And this description of what happened when he addressed a meeting here comes from his memoirs. I got a requisition signed by 30 respectable inhabitants of the city of Bath, the exact number of the corporation who returned the members of Parliament. Having placed my name at the head of them, I waited upon the mayor, Mr Anderton, an apothecary, I believe. He was better known amongst the citizens of Bath by the name of Pump Handle. He read it over and said that the city of Bath had never been troubled with a public meeting and he could not see why there should be any meeting there now. I told him that there would certainly be a meeting whether he called it or not. As he refused, the meeting was appointed to be held on my premises, a large yard in Walcott Street. Resolutions were now proposed and passed. At this, as well as all the public meetings that I attended, the petition prayed for annual parliaments, universal suffrage and vote by ballot. Two years later, Henry Hunt addressed a similar meeting at St Peter's Fields in Manchester when about 80,000 people turn up. Again, there was no threat of serious civil disturbance, but the magistrates ordered the meeting to be broken up and the military charged the crowd. 11 people were killed, hundreds were wounded. And the massacre, of course, Peterloo. Eighteen thirty-five, two very important pieces of legislation were passed by Parliament. The first was the Municipal Corporations Act. Now this abolished the Bath Corporation and introduced council elections for the first time. This this absolute transformation of Bath, because what it meant was those thirty men. They could stand for election if they wanted but so could anybody else. The results of the first election in Bath, Tory 11, Liberal 13, Radical 24, Doubtful 2. I've no idea what doubtful means, but that was, that was the results. The other interesting thing about the results, they use the word liberal. There was no liberal party nationally at this stage. They were still the Whigs. They didn't become the Liberals for another 20 years or so. But the Liberal Party was founded in Bath, or the Liberal and Unionist Constitutional Association was founded in Bath in 1835 for the purposes of this election. So the Liberal Party in Bath started back then. Right, that was the first thing. So that, that, that completely changed Bath's politics. Now the other important piece of le legislation which was passed in 1835 was the Poor Law Amendment Act by the Reform Parliament. But before I talk about that, we're going to be heading along to Monmouth Street. So we're going to be walking along Monmouth Street, cross at the end, and then we're going to walk along Monmouth Place a little way. You'll see why when we get there. Right, I brought you 
along here to show you this building, which was a riding school. That's what it used to look like. It's been refronted, but you can see the archway still in the same place. It's still the same shape. This is where the Bath Friends of Reform held a dinner for 700 guests in 1835. All sorts of dignitaries from all over the area were here, all of them largely forgotten. But someone who is not forgotten today was somebody who would, wouldn't have been recognised as of any importance at the time, and that was the young reporter who was, who was reporting on the, um, on the event for one of the London papers. He was 23 years old at the time, and his name was Charles Dickens. Now, any hopes that there might have been that the Reform Act would usher in an age of peace and plenty had by this stage been rudely dashed. Eighteen thirty-four also saw, as I said before, one of the most um, evil pieces of legislation to be adopted by the Liberals: the Poor Law Amendment Act, a betrayal of the working classes at a time of growing economic depression. But perhaps the most damning condemnation of the workhouse system came from the pen of that young political journalist, who just over a year after his visit to the riding school published the first instalment of Oliver Twist. And a few years later, he returned to the subject of laissez-faire capitalism and its consequences in A Christmas Carol. Bath's workhouse at Odd Down was built at this time. It was built to accommodate 600 people. By 1845, there were over 750 people and adults and 375 children there. In 1837, the Bath Working Men's Association was formed at Tucker's Coffee House. And this marks the start of a period when Bath suddenly became one of the hotspots of radicalism. It lasted only a very short time, but it was one of the most extraordinary and unexpected chapters in the, in the city's history. The following year, a national people's charter was drawn up calling for universal suffrage, no property qualification, annual parliaments, equal representation, payment of MPs and secret ballots. Well, sounds fairly reasonable, but this was the rallying flag for a movement that was to shake the country to its foundations. Taking its name from the charter, it was known as Chartism. Right, we're right across town to Galloway's buildings and number five. The reason I brought you here, this was the home of Thomas Bolwell, who as uh, more, more than anybody else was um, the face of Chartism in Bath in the 1840s. He was a shoemaker and he was secretary of the BWMA from 1837 until 
its demise in 1848. And it, it was at a meeting in this house that the BWMA, Bath Working Men's Association, formally subscribed to the National Charter. So this is where Chartism in Bath started, officially started. The passage of the 1867 Reform Act was once again preceded by mass demonstrations and all manner of dire prophecies. Bath, though, did not really feature in any of this. 35 years on from the first Reform Act, the city was a very different place. The great industrial cities of Victorian England had far outstripped what was by now a place that people came to die <laughs> and from where the best and brightest had long moved on. But this does not detract from Bath's proud place in the history of Britain's 19th century radicalism. Thank you. Thanks there to Andrew Swift. Now let's move on into the 20th century where the fight for women's suffrage really takes hold. Professor Emerita June Hannam from the University of the West of England is our expert guide to the suffragette movement and what happened here in Bath. Here she is. Well, my title is Professor Emerita of Modern British History, but my specialisms have been looking at women's history and labour history. And so I've particularly looked at women who were socialist or women in politics and things at the end of the 19th up to about, you know, 1940s, I guess. And today we're particularly interested in how Bath has been radical over the years and we're, th we're here to think about the suffragettes. So can we just start by putting it in a context, in a timeline context of suffrage? Well, women nationally first started to demand the vote in an organised way in 1866-1867. And they obviously didn't get the vote until 1918 or some of them. And so the movement was a very long one and it took many forms. And to begin with, it was seen as very radical just for women to stand on platforms and speak publicly. You have a Liberal government in 1905 and the Liberals ostensibly were sympathetic to women's suffrage, or many of them were. And so women became increasingly frustrated that even with a Liberal government, they were not getting the vote. And that's when you have the development of the more militant side of the suffrage movement, which we call the suffragettes, led by people that I think an awful lot of the population know, which is Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter Christabel Pankhurst. But again, they actually formed the Women's Social and Political Union in 1903. But it was 1905 to 6 when they first did their what are called militant actions, which is when they heckled at a meeting, were thrown out. Christabel Pankhurst spits at a policeman, deliberately really, to get arrested. And so this is the first time women are carrying out actions that got them actually arrested. They then chained themselves to railings. They did the things that people are quite aware of. And at various times, they then escalated some of their militancy because they felt they weren't getting anywhere. 
And it's towards, oh, I suppose, 1909, they start smashing windows. Then they get sent to prison. Then they go on hunger strike. Then the government starts to force feed them. And then some of their militancy escalates again so that they start to burn down buildings, slash paintings and so on, which is on the lead up to the First World War. And I suppose it all stops at the beginning of the First World War, basically. So they were very radical for their time, in their time. How was this received by ordinary people? That's a very difficult question to answer, of course, because it's quite hard to gauge public opinion. But I think at the beginning, they did have a lot of sympathy when you could argue that they were carrying out their constitutional right to heckle at a meeting. There was a lot of interest in the fact that women were doing this. But on the other hand... Um, there could be a huge amount of hostility. So you find that when they're, you know, having processions in London or whatever, there, there would be a lot of hostility from the crowd. And there were some very difficult times before the First World War when they were on a, a very large demonstration in London. And they were actually sexually assaulted by both members of the crowd and the police force. And the police didn't really do anything to stop it. And it was called Black Friday because it was such you know a difficult time so they did have to put up with a great deal of discomfort for doing this they were brave women so let's turn our attention to bath and uh, tell us how the suffragette movement came to bath and what impact it had here well bath has become now quite well known for having a really important um, branch of the suffragette movement and this is partly because the Blathwaite family, um, this is Colonel Lindley Blathwaite, who was a retired colonel from the Indian Army, living in Bath Eastern with his wife Emily, his daughter Mary, and their son, who then went to Germany. And what is wonderful for the historian, and why we know a lot about it, is that the two women of the family wrote copious diaries, and they were writing diaries from the late 19th century onwards. But we know from their diaries that when they were going around to friends' houses, they saw literature about votes for women. And then they find that there are some talks going on in Bristol and in London. And Mary, the daughter, goes to London and hears some of the leaders of the Women's Social and Political Union speaking. And she gets very fired up by this, comes back, wears her Votes for Women badge for the first time, actually puts Votes for Women posters on post boxes in um, Bath Easton, all of which is seen as a very radical thing to do. And then they go to hear two of the leaders of the movement, one of whom is Annie Kenny, who was a mill girl from Manchester and is one of the few working class leaders of the movement. In the local area, she becomes seen as the most charismatic kind of speaker. And a really big turning point is in 1908. She has actually made the regional organiser for this area and she goes to live in Bristol. And so Mary Blathwaite actually goes and stays with her in Bristol and learns all kinds of things about how to run a meeting and chalking pavements for meetings and so on. And so you find there's a Bath branch of this, but they're also pretty connected to what's going on in Bristol as well. And is this Eagle House? Is that the name of the house in Bath Easton? Yes, yeah, so um, the house where the Blathwaites lived was Eagle House. It's still there, but it had extensive grounds at the time. And of course, the parents, they are also very into this suffragette movement at the time, and they want to do something to help. So they tend to open Eagle House and the grounds 
to tea parties to raise money for the movement. They have lots of meetings there. And when women start to get arrested for throwing stones through windows and so on, they use their place as somewhere that they can recuperate. So Eagle House becomes a sort of hub. Speakers stay there. And I understand that they planted trees, is that right? They do. So when suffrage people visited, they were encouraged to plant a tree and there was a a name plaque underneath. And those people who went to prison, their trees are in the middle and then others are more around the circle. And you planted a different tree if you've been to prison. And Colonel Lindley Blathwaite, who was an amateur photographer, would take their photographs. So what we have is this enormous collection of photographs of the suffragettes who went and and used the house. But of course, the interesting thing is that the photographs still remain, but the trees, all but one, have now been bulldozed. That's so sad. That's so sad. Because when the house was bought, eventually, not only was the house converted, but later on, a housing estate was built around it. And so the extensive grounds are now a housing estate. And they have identified one tree as being one of the original suffrage trees. And so you might speculate on why did they want them to plant trees? And one could think about it's supposed to being a lasting reminder. It it shows really, and I think we all know, that women involved in that movement knew they were involved in something important that would be seen as important. And they knew about their significance in history, I think. And it was the sense of wanting to not just write books about it, but also to leave lasting reminders. But unfortunately, it's only the photographs that we have. It's a wonderful thing that we have those photographs, though. And even if there's only just one tree, at least that still survives. And now, moving into the present, we have XR, we have Don't Stop Oil. We had the bypass protest in the 90s. Do protests work? It's a simple question, really, but it's it's asked a lot every time there is a protest, I think. Well, that has been one of the major questions about the suffrage movement, of course. Firstly, whether the militant tactics were counterproductive or whether they actually had an effect. At the same time, of course, there is the bigger constitutional movement, of which there is also a branch in Bath. And there was often a lot of toing and froing between the groups in Bath. These are not mutually exclusive, and women would go between them. And as I've already said, um, Emily Blathwaite left the WSBU at one point, and she went for a short while and joined the Conservative franchise and Unionist Association, largely because they wouldn't touch anything that was liberal. They were so annoyed at the Liberal Party. And it's, it's one of these things where there's no definite answer, isn't it, really? Because the militant movement, they did bring suffrage right into the centre of politics. Um, it's all over the newspapers. Everyone now knows about women's suffrage. Uh, it's on everybody's lips. You know, you read the Daily Mail, you read any of the newspapers you know, these actions have floated across the front. It does encourage the more constitutional movement to take actions that they probably wouldn't have taken in the 19th century, like having big processions. And the constitutional movement had a big pilgrimage in 1913, where women walked from different parts of the country to converge in London and have a big demonstration. And actually it went through Bath, 
and picked up people from Bath who walked through. And as the women walked through, they went to Twerton and gave a talk in Twerton in which they were, you know, assaulted by some of the crowd and had to escape through the back of the building. But I think all protesters would say, if you can't make your voices heard through the political process, and of course women in particular couldn't because they didn't have the vote, so they couldn't use the political process at all. And now other groups would probably say, well, I think if you look at the political parties now, they've all changed their minds, all of them, on what's going to happen about climate change, haven't they? And I guess those groups would say the same, that they can't make their voices heard through the usual channels. You have to make a noise in some other way. This episode is about radical Bath. How radical do you think Bath is or was or has been over the years? I think Bath has a history of radicalism, which is often overlooked because it is seen as Romans and Jane Austen. I was impressed hearing a talk when I was at the Bath Museum of Work one day about really quite radical Walcott back in the 70s. And I was living here in the 70s and it reminded me of how different Bath was then, that it was not a very posh place with lots of very rich houses, but that a lot of houses that were in need of repair. And you have Bath Arts, for example, in Walcott Street. They were reminding us of how in the 70s they had a huge kind of ecological fair down at Kensington Meadows in which people came along demonstrating alternative forms of power, wind power, solar power. You had people coming along with organic foods. Walcott Reclamation has started, of course, about how do we reuse things and don't just throw them away when houses were being pulled down. And so I think at different times in its history, Bath had, has a radical character, but things change over time, don't they? So we've finally got the full vote that we have now. Is this right, in 1928? Yes, 1928 gave women and men over the age of 21 all had the vote. How did the UK fare in comparison to other European countries? I mean, for memory, Switzerland women didn't get the vote till something like 1961 but 71 71 71 so how do we compare to France and Germany and well we don't we don't compare too badly I think there were a few small countries like Finland had the vote in 1906 but quite a substantial number of European countries women got the vote after the first world war and then The same thing happened after the Second World War with other countries, like Italy, for example, had the vote after the Second World War. And some of them, of course, like Germany, women had the vote but then lost it again because, of course, um, after the Weimar Republic under Nazi Germany, uh, there wasn't voting, really. And the same in Spain. There were issues where women got the vote and then lost it again because political regimes changed. France was pretty late in giving women the vote. That was after the Second World War as well, 1944, I think. So there were, yeah, a whole range of things. And very often the argument is that after a war, because you get quite radical changes in the nature of political systems, so after the First World War, some of the old empires break up, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and you get a lot of new states like Czechoslovakia and so on. And in setting up new republics, they often want to introduce a different kind of voting system. And sometimes women can be seen, I think in Germany that was the case, women were seen as as not 
too right and not too left and potentially holding a bit of a balance between groups that might be more extreme. So there could be all sorts of reasons why you might want women to have the vote in those circumstances to stabilise regimes. So it's quite complicated. I mean, in France, for example, there were often issues about whether women might be uh, more royalist and therefore could support regimes that might bring back the monarchy. So, you know, depending on which country it is, there are often those political considerations going on rather than, you know, it is not right that adult women should not be able to vote. So there's, with all of the protest women uh, movements women were involved in, you've always got to take those things into account, I suppose, and um, sort out your political alliances and and so on. But then, again, you get these arguments, as you have said right at the beginning, how important was protest in all of this? So, again, there are discussions about Britain has one of the most active and one of the largest women's suffrage movements in Europe. And... Britain is also seen as pioneering militant methods. However, many countries got the vote at the same time as British women got the vote and they hadn't had a big movement at all. And so therefore, it does raise those questions you said at the beginning, how important was actually having a suffrage movement. I would say it's important because I think it does bring the whole issue into public debate, really. And of course women's suffrage campaign has always said it wasn't just about the vote, it's about what women might do with the vote. And so again, it raises all sorts of questions about women's broader role in society and what needs to be changed. Thank you so much, June, for talking to us today. That was Professor June Hannam. We travel eight decades now to 1994 to the Salisbury Hill bypass protest. It was a time when Margaret Thatcher's largest road-building programme since the Romans was in full swing under John Major and a rising tide of non-violent protest emerged across the country. Nowhere was it more in evidence than Bath where campaigners fought to halt the Bath Eastern to Swainswick bypass. I met up with Annie Beardsley who along with Bath's very popular natural theatre company took a show to Salisbury Hill to entertain protesters, but also raise awareness of the protest. And I started by asking her what the show was all about. So we were country ladies and gents dressed in tweeds and flat caps, and we were bigging up the role of cars in the countryside, and our protest banners were all about cars are us, cars are you know, the future. It's ironic, obviously. You can tell by looking at us that we're comedy characters. And the idea was to go along and support the protest, but also to raise the temperature a bit by being provocative. And it worked really well, I think. And of course, this was in 1994, when the plans were to build the A46 past Bath, which of course they did do in the end. They did do, but it was it was originally designed to be part of a, a whole network that connected the M4 and the M5 to Southampton along the A36. You know, it's always been a road to nowhere, and the promise that it would reduce 
traffic to the city centre hasn't been realised. Traffic is worse than ever. And it's vandalised the countryside, the, the land just south, just below Salisbury Hill, which is one of the most beautiful landscapes in the West Country, Charlecombe Valley and Salisbury Hill. I still feel quite emotional about it. I see it when I look out my window and I hear the noise from it and I live in Fairfield Park, so across the valley from it. That's fascinating because if you're not involved in a protest, you hear about it on the news and then a decision gets made and everybody in the the media storm moves on and we all move on. But for you, it's still a very much a live issue because you can literally hear it from where you live. Well, and I can see it looking out the window. When you joined the protest, did you did they ask you to come or did you decide as a company you wanted to support them? I definitely wanted to do it. When I saw it was happening, uh, I suggested it to a couple of friends. And, um, yeah, I was a regular performer with the company at the time, so we could go and get costumes and turn out and do something quite um, impromptu, which was the great thing about the work. You know, it really just involved costumes that we got from charity shops so you could produce something really quickly. It must have been a lot of fun, Annie. It was It was a lot of fun, and um, it is always rewarding when you make people laugh and forget their problems for a few seconds. And where did you go? Were you, were you on Salisbury Hill itself? Uh, yes, we were actually where the diggers and tractors were, by the Harris fencing, they were trying to block off bits of it, and yes, right there. And there was a camp there where um, I know Bell Mooney camped for a while and others. There was a group of people living on site, 15 or 20 people, for quite a long time until they started cutting down the trees. And there was a horrible accident when someone fell out of a tree when they were um, trying to get people out of the trees. And that person has stayed a very active in the non-violent direct action movement around climate change and no new fossil fuels. And lots of people came and went during the day. So, you know, maybe there were 40 or 50 people there some days. So your audience were protesters, but were they also the digger? Yes, the security guards. They were definitely the security guards as well. And we get a reaction from them too. They enjoyed it just as much as the protesters. But I think one of the points of doing it is to get media coverage and make sure that the issue is high on the media agenda much like direct action that happens these days. You know, people go out there and want media attention because it seems to be the only way of getting your argument across these days is social media and journalists who turn up and take pictures. And I think the other interesting thing about it in the context of what's going on today is it was an argument about the environment, the natural environment and preserving the countryside rural England and and not defiling it with 
motorways and loads of concrete and things like that. And people were reading about climate change in the 70s and 80s. And we were all looking at our diets in relation to eating meat and all that kind of thing. All the arguments that are now really prominent around climate change were around then. Fabulous. Thank you so much. You've been a delight. It's been great to hear about it. Oh, you're welcome. Finally, we come right up to the present day and it's the turn of the children. For an hour every few months, you may notice an exuberant bunch of cyclists touring the streets of Bath. Circled by marshals in high-vis jackets, scores of children cycle in safety. They're campaigning for safer streets to cycle in every day and the campaign is called Kiddical Mass. There we have it. Kiddical Mass, about, I don't know, between 50 and 100 cyclists, people of all ages from the very small to the quite old, have just taken off from the Orange Grove en masse, all with flags flying, saying Kiddical Mass. And we're going to catch up with them at the end at Sydney Gardens at 12 o'clock. So Jude, you're one of the organisers. What, what was your role today? So I ride at the front with Saskia um, and we're in charge of the marshal, so kind of pointing out where people need to stop cars from riding into our route. And a lot of parents are saying it's really lovely to see their kids be able to ride in this sort of safe rectangle of marshals and they just can't do that otherwise. People are saying that they're planning their route home and actually getting to the ride is when they feel the least safe, but during the ride, you know, they feel really protected. I'm here at the end of the critical mass in Sydney Gardens. Here's one of the organisers. Who are you? Yes, I am. Hello, this is Delia. Hi. Hi, Delia. <laughs> Delia, there's so many people here. Is this like this every time you do it? Uh, yes, we have had lovely rides with more than 100 people. It's so lovely to have children, family, adults coming on their own, enjoying the ride. It is a lovely ride, lots of fun, lots of ringing of bells. And yes, we love it. I've interrupted Saskia eating her biscuit. So, how did it go today? Yeah, it went very well. We had um, we had a lot of volunteers, which was super helpful. So uh, that really helps if we have like more than ten people helping out. Yeah. And how long have you been organising this? I was just thinking this morning has been two and a half years. Yeah. It's amazing, so, isn't it? All I don't these know how many rides. I've I've lost count basically. <laughs> yeah. We've done them quite regularly. Um, yeah. So Kiddical Mass is in Bath, but it's an it's a international organisation, is it? It's an international movement. There's no organisation internationally or nationally, but um, yeah, it's a movement. In Germany, there's a lot of rides happening. Germany is basically the biggest Kiddical Mass community in the world. Uh, and this weekend is actually a global action weekend. So there's like, I think there's over 500 uh, towns taking part with either a bike bus or a Kiddical Mass or a play street or a school street. Okay, and tell me what's behind it. What, what's, the, what's the aim? 
the aim is to show how much fun cycling is and that families and people of all ages actually want to cycle and that we just want the space to do so, to feel safe. Because cycling is extremely safe, but it doesn't always feel like that because you often have to mix with motorised traffic uh, moving at quite a high speed, which is very scary. And especially for children, that just doesn't feel safe. So, um, yeah, so we basically call for Safer Street. It's a protest to um, call for Safer Street. Good to get the young ones protesting early. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we always say it's like it's a fun event, but with a serious message. And I think children get that; they understand. And um, when they are riding on the roads in Bath, they are like, "Yes, we do want to cycle here. We never cycle here, but actually, we want to. And uh, why are we never allowed?" So, how many times have you been on Kidical Mass ride? Um, every time. <laughs> Is that because your mum organises it? Probably. <laughs> but there's a cycle lane here, right, that you use all the time. That's great. Yeah, so but it's issue? not big enough. Not big enough. And you can't go through the park from the canal path because there's stairs. So, well, like children can, uh, like I can go over the stairs, but if you have like really big e-bikes and stuff, you can't go over those stairs. No. So you have to go around there. And there was actually a plan to make that a ramp, but then they that was they like ran out of money year. and then they were like, oh, we'll just not do the steps, we'll not do the ramp. We said it like yeah, last year and then they haven't done anything. What's it mean to you to come today? Um, it's fantastic to see a really positive demonstration of what people want to happen with transport in Bath. Seeing all these kids on bikes is just a really positive, non-confrontational way of generating a good feeling about more cycle facilities and safer streets. But I think that definitely we have made more noise and people have demonstrated they want to cycle, they're happy to cycle. And you know, we do understand that a lot of families might want to, but they don't feel like going out in a group, especially in the city centre, because the roads are busy. We share the road with cars and other and pedestrians, it's not a problem, but sometimes it's so busy you don't have space. Did you go on the ride today? Yes. And uh, what was it like? Uh, we got stuck in traffic. <laughs> did you? Oh, and uh, did you just have to stop at that point? Yeah. So do you cycle a lot? No. no. Not usually. Not usually. We walk a lot. Oh, do you? So what, what sort of bike have you got? A womb. A what? A womb. A womb? What do you mean? Show me. Tell, tell the lady how it is. It's fancy. A womb. <laughs> Oh, look, it's really called a womb. That's new to me. That's very cool, isn't it? And you've got a very cool helmet. Do you always wear that? Yeah. Good. <laughs> and do you think the infrastructure's changing to suit cyclists' needs a bit more? Um, there are some more uh, segregated cycle lanes, but not enough. So what would you like to see, ideally? Because Bath was kind of built hundreds of years ago, wasn't it? Not for cyclists, but certainly not for traffic either. Yeah, I'd like to see, there, you know, clearly with events like this, there are lots of people, children, families, who want to ride on the road, and I'd like to see people put at the kind of forefront of decision-making and not cars. And do you think um, that Bath and North East Somerset Council is taking note? Are there any changes? 
Um, well, I'm actually a councillor myself. Uh, Are you? <laughs> I'm a Green Party councillor for uh, Lambridge Ward. One of the reasons I, I stood to be elected is because I was doing this and I thought I want to see more change. So I think Bath is taking, Bath and North East Somerset are taking excellent steps. Uh, we've, we've seen the first protected cycle lane is just along here on Beckford Road. It's just the fact that it's only 200 metres long is an issue, obviously. So in the last four years, we've seen... Um, I think the total was, um, I think it's one kilometre of uh, protected cycle lane, which is not enough. So I like what I'm seeing and I like what they're doing. We just want more and faster because our children are children now and they are growing up. And uh, we need this now because we need people to be able to shift from taking their car to walking and cycling. So not just a kind of middle-aged man in Lycra cycling. We need everyone to cycle, normal people in normal clothes, on normal bikes with baskets and shopping, just going about their day-to-day life and cycling to school and stuff, and not just a kind of hardcore road bike um, Lycra person. Do you think the hills put people off? Um, I think it's mostly the traffic in Bath, to be honest. Uh, yeah, the hills are an issue. Um, E-bikes are amazing for that. So what's your message to all of us who haven't been on a bike for a little while? Join a critical mass to kind of find other people who are in the same position as you are. And you were mentioning the fact that you can now hire bicycles and e-bikes, is that right, in Bath? Yeah, so we've now got tier in and they've got the shared e-bikes and the e-scooters and we've had one person today, one dad, joining on a tier e-bike to cycle alongside his son. And that worked okay, so yeah, I think there's now more possibilities for people who maybe haven't got a bike or um, cannot cycle into Bath, but then they may be able to cycle in Bath. Um, so yeah, there's just more options for people, which is important, I think, to um, offer options. Yeah. And if people want to get involved in Critical Mass, how do they get hold of you? Um, yeah, the best way is either on Facebook or on Instagram, Kiddikamas Bath. Um, you'll find us there and we'll update you on the next ride. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Saskia. You're welcome. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you so much for joining me. And don't forget, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. And for more information on Bathscape, visit the website bathscape.co.uk. Thanks too to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer, and I'll see you next month.